text listed there, you're like, wow, we're going to get into it here. We're only going to do a, a, just a, a, an overview of, of verses 17 through 48 um, this morning. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to read verses 17 through 20 for us. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. <clears throat> Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is God's word. It's entirely true, and it's given to us in love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. That we have the freedom here to, to open it up and to study it, to proclaim it, to learn from it what you would have us to learn. So God, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and minds to understand what it is that you have to show us uh, through your word. And we pray all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as we jump in into our text here, you need to, you need to see these verses uh, as, as an introduction to, to not only the rest of chapter 5, uh, but also to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. But particularly here, Jesus in chapter 5 is teaching on uh, six different aspects of the law. So he's kind of giving this overview sermon where he's, he's kind of pulled some examples out of um, the Ten Commandments uh, specifically. Uh, about anger and lust and divorce and oaths and revenge and love. But all of these things in this passage this morning are, are, are kind of forcing us to ask the question, what do these topics and the entirety of the Bible look like according to the finished work of Jesus? What do these things look like according to the gospel? So the great controversy of Jesus' words here are, do they affirm or deny the validity of the Old Testament? Can we now ignore it and get on with brighter, more cheery things, rather than looking back at some old writings that don't seem to have much relevance for us now, because Jesus is here? And Jesus' answer to this is a resounding no. Jesus is not bringing a new teaching in his sermon. Jesus is not uh, the God of the New Testament who is nice and lovely and kind and gracious and has come now to get rid of the, the big, mean God of the Old Testament. No, Jesus has come to do the contrary. And seeing this, you begin to have your eyes open to the truth that the Old Testament is not altogether irrelevant to us who are on this side of the New Testament. So what Jesus' words communicate first and foremost is that 
He alone answers the question of the entire Bible. That he is the first and the last. That he is the thread that runs throughout all of the Bible, all of the story of God, that holds everything about the Bible together. So the whole of the Bible is recovered only by looking to Jesus. And so we see this ourselves in our text today, and we're going to look at it in three ways. And these are found in your worship guide if you're taking notes. Uh, One is how Jesus fulfills the law. Second is how Jesus reframes the law for us. And then how do we apply the law? So fulfilling the law, reframing the law, and then applying the law. And all of these are only seen correctly through the lens of Jesus. So first, fulfilling the law. Look at verse 17 again. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, my first question when I approached this text to study this week and to to prepare for this, this moment right now was to ask, why would anyone think Jesus came to abolish the law? Why would that be one of the first things that he says as he's addressing this this crowd of his disciples and people who are just standing around uh, the edges listening to him? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One is that the scribes and Pharisees that he mentions uh, here in verse 20 have made the law into a legalistic nightmare for everyone but themselves. So, of course, some were probably hoping that when the Messiah came, that he would come to abolish the law. That he would come to abolish these rules and regulations that that the religious elite have made the law into. To free them from the burden of impossible rules and policies set forth by these men. And in a way, Jesus does come to abolish that. But really what we have here are two groups, not one that misunderstand the law. So one group sees it as a way to to gain status before God and the admiration of the people. And they do a pretty good job of it. While the other group saw the law as an overly burdensome, impossible way in in which to be right before God. Something uh, never attained on their own. And they recognized that. They knew that they could not attain righteousness on their own. They knew that they could not even attain righteousness through the way in which the Pharisees and the scribes were teaching people to live. They knew it was impossible. So verses 17 through 20 are the main thesis statement for the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Because they set up for us why it's important to understand that Jesus did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. And this idea of fulfillment is is laced throughout Matthew's gospel, and we would be amiss to skip over its importance here. Because we can only understand the righteousness that Jesus has talked about in verses 6, 10, and 20, when we understand how Jesus fulfills the law, and the prophets. So first, 
what is the law and the prophets? We keep, we keep saying that. Well, the law is, is the first five books of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy. So, so the way in which you have it laid out in your English translation of the Bible from Genesis to Deuteronomy, that is the, the law in which Jesus is referring to here. So whenever you hear that in God's word, that when you hear the law being talked about, typically those first five books of the Bible, that is what is being talked about there. So these, 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 these books of the Bible were the most important books to the Jewish people. It explained the, the whole foundation story of God's people. It explained uh, not only how God created the world, which is massive, but it also explains how God created a people for himself. So these are important books of the Bible. Now, within the law, the Jews discovered that there are 613 commandments in this part of the Bible as well, which opened up this wonderful opportunity for the teachers of the law to use these commandments as measuring tools for holiness and acceptableness uh, before God. So you can see, coupling all of that together, you can, see, you can begin to see when someone like Jesus comes in from the outside and, and seemingly to a lot of people out of nowhere and starts saying things like, I have come to fulfill the law. I have come to fulfill the most important commands and the most important stories that you have. All of those things that you have learned about as a child and grown up memorizing and reciting I am the one that those things are talking about. And I am here to complete them. Now you can see why many people would be suspicious of someone who would come in and start spouting those kinds of words. You can begin to see why that would make others angry enough to even begin to plot his murder. Well, the rest of the Jewish scriptures referred to by Jesus here as the prophets uh, was simply understood as having been spoken and written by the prophets. And this included um, books like the Psalms as well, not just the, the, the prophets that you see like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Malachi. This also included the Psalms. So when Jesus refers to the law and the prophets, this was just a simple way to say all of God's written revelation up to this point. The entirety of the Bible is what Jesus is saying here. So to, to paraphrase Jesus, he says this, I did not come to abolish the law or what the prophets have rightly interpreted about me in them. I have come to fill them out for you. I have come to fulfill them. Because the law and the prophets tell us who Jesus is. So Jesus he directs his listeners as to how they should think about the law and his relationship to the law. Jesus is the linchpin. He's the linchpin to all of this. So if, if Jesus doesn't fulfill the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets are not true. The Bible is not true if Jesus doesn't fulfill it. Because the law points us forward to the teachings of Christ, 
And then the prophets point us forward to the actions of Christ. And Jesus, with his life, affirms and confirms both by fulfilling what they say in his person and work. So Jesus fulfilling and not abolishing tells us this. It tells us that in the following verses that we've just read and and in those uh, 21 to 48, Jesus is not offering his listeners a plan A and a plan B. Jesus is not saying, look, if if you're doing okay with plan A, which is uh, following the law and sacrificing on the right days and celebrating the the correct uh, festivals and, and doing all of the right things, well, then you're good. Just keep doing what you're doing. But if you cannot fulfill plan A, if that's a little too difficult for you, then I have plan B, and you can follow what I'm about to tell you. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Now, this is an important distinction to understand because if this were the case, if Jesus were giving us two ways, Jesus would be essentially saying to us that there are more than one way uh, to get to God. That he coming to the earth uh, and to to live a perfect life for you and to die a death that you deserve and and to be resurrected on the third day after his death would be pointless. So you could have a choice. It could be through your own works. If you think you're good enough to do that. And some of you, I'm sure, are sitting here thinking that you are. Or through the work of Jesus. Or, 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 or the work of the law or the work of grace. You could put it that way. Jesus brings the true, consummated understanding of the law and the prophets. This is why verses 18 and 19 play such an important role here because Jesus elaborates on the the reliability of the words of the Bible and his fulfillment of them. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or dot, dot, which is just uh, markings in your Hebrew text, you would have different markings that would... um, just like an exclamation point or period like we have in, in, in our English translations, not an iota or dot, so not even the smallest measure of the law, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So essentially what Jesus says here is that if the words of the law and the prophets are not fulfilled by him, they are unreliable. Since, since he is who the law and the prophets are pointing to. They can do nothing else but this. So verse 19 then says, because of this, if you relax one of them, even the smallest one, even the smallest law, even the one that you think is the most unimportant law, and then you teach others to do the exact same thing, Jesus says you will be considered least in the kingdom of God. Now this word relax here, I'm sure that shows up in most of your English translations of the Bible, but this word relax simply means to untie a person or thing that is tied up. That's that's the, the Greek definition of that word. To untie a person or thing that is tied up. So, what Jesus is saying, if you untie a person or unhitch them from the law, from 
uh, the prophets from the Old Testament, you are considered least in the kingdom of God. Why? Because you are doing harm when you do that. Jesus speaks later in Matthew's gospel that it would be better for someone like this to have a millstone, which is just a giant stone, tied around their neck and be thrown into the sea rather than cause one of his little ones to stumble. It would be better for you to die than to lead people away from Jesus. And then he says, but whoever applies them and teaches others to apply them will be called great in the kingdom of God. Because if you relax the law, you could say it this way, if you relax the law, you untie people from Jesus. If you apply them, and you're faithful to them, and you're walking in obedience according to them, and you help others to do the same, you are tying people or tethering people to Jesus. And the reason being is not that we are continuing to practice Old Testament practices like feasts and sacrifices, so don't get nervous about that. But what we are doing when we apply the full counsel of God, as it says in Acts, meaning the, the entirety of the Bible, when we do that, when we apply it to our lives and teach others to do the exact same thing, that just means that we are coming alongside the law and the prophets, or, or better yet, a better way to put that probably, is we are entering into the story with the law and with the prophets and with God's people and seeing and savoring Jesus from the scriptures with them. So we are agreeing alongside the law and the prophets that they are pointing to our Savior. So we don't polarize the Old Testament and the New Testament, seeing, seeing the Old Testament as, as a book of wrath and law and works, and then seeing the New Testament as the book of love and grace and faith. No, both serve the exact same purpose, to exalt Jesus Christ. So take that with you as you, as, you, uh, as you engage in God's word during the week. And when you're, when you're thrust into a book like Leviticus and you're going, what in the world does this have to do with my life? Begin to filter that through the lens of Jesus. And you will be greatly helped by that. And it's here that Jesus makes this very clear because uh, he's not abolishing the law. He's fulfilling it. And, and by fulfilling the law... He is reframing the law around himself. So he's giving us a clearer understanding of what the law is actually teaching because the teachers of the law during this time, the Pharisees and the scribes, are not doing this. They're not reframing the law around Jesus. So throughout verses 21 through 48, Jesus uses the same wording six times to communicate what he's doing here with the Old Testament, with the law. Jesus says something along these lines six times. You have heard that it was said to those of old, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said, but I now say to you. Now this is important phrasing for a couple of reasons. First, we see the deity of Jesus in these words. 
So no one, no one, if they wanted to live a long life, would ever choose this phrasing and say it out loud. Because to say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, to say that is a statement declaring yourself to be the ultimate authority of the truth of God. It's to declare yourself God. So Jesus here is revealing himself to, to, to be God, but also to be the arbiter of God's word. Similar to how he stood up in the temple, if you remember the story when Jesus is in the temple in Luke chapter 4, he opens the scroll to Isaiah 61, which says this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Just side note, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, Isaiah is a big uh, book of prophecy. Isaiah was a prophet. So when Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets, Isaiah is one of them. So he's reading Isaiah here, 61. As it's written, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So he's in the temple the most religious place you could be in the world at that particular time, he opens the scroll, he opens the Bible to Isaiah 61, reads it, and then gives this short and simple exposition. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And then sits down. So what Jesus has just said to the crowd gathered is, I am the Messiah. I am the one who has come to free the captives. I am the one who has come to give sight to the blind. I am fulfilling this now in your hearing. He's declaring himself the fulfillment of the scriptures. But the second reason this is important phrasing is because it lets us know the authority of Jesus as well. Meaning these words are not antithesis. The, this is not Jesus pitting himself against the Old Testament. So Jesus isn't saying here, uh, this is not true, and now this is true here uh, because I'm saying these words. Jesus isn't saying, uh, this is wrong, and what I'm saying is right. So stop doing this and start doing this. That is not what Jesus is doing here. What he's communicating is how the law and the prophets were always meant to be interpreted. Always. Jesus says this in John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47. He says, For if you believed Moses, now for him to say Moses uh, to a crowd would automatically trigger in their minds and in their imagination their understanding of the book of the law and who wrote the book of the law. Moses wrote the book of the law. For if you believe Moses, who wrote the book of the law, who, who wrote out what God had, had done and, and said in the life of God's people, then you would believe me. Why would, he, why would we believe Jesus because of that? Jesus says, for he wrote of me. He wrote of me. But if you did not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? 
that Jesus is equating his words to and with the words of the Old Testament. Now, this is oftentimes hard for us to understand because you may have grown up, grown up like this and grown up being taught the Bible and, uh, and your understanding of the Bible that was drilled into your head was that it's, there's two Testaments. I mean, you can look in your Bible now and there's, you probably have a blank page before the New Testament to, to separate the two. And so we have this understanding of the Bible as two Testaments drilled into our mind instead of a holistic model for the Bible. And what Jesus does for us is voluntarily and deliberately attach himself to the Old Testament, affirming it as God's true word, and then setting himself to fulfill it at all costs, even the cost of his own life. And this is what gives us a holistic picture because it's an entire book about Jesus, about one man and this truth alone should give us the courage and the ability to apply the law as jesus gives it to us here in verses 20 through 48 because now we know that it's not given to us as an impossible checklist but as a means in which jesus is glorified because in applying the law we also have to reframe our lives around jesus so in applying the law in, in verses 20 through 48, and we're not going to dive into to those individually this time. I've actually preached on the Sermon on the Mount before. So if you ever want to see those sermons, um, and I preached on it here as a church um, a long time ago, um, 2016, which wasn't that long ago. But, but I've do, I dove into those individually, but we're not going to do that here. But what I do want us to see is that Jesus does have a twofold purpose to show in bringing up these six particular laws. One is what sort of attitude and behavior Jesus requires of his people. And you can begin to read through those and get an understanding of what it is Jesus is calling us to as the church, as Christians. And then, secondly, how his demands surpass those of the law without contradicting the law. We've already covered that a little bit. Because what, Genesis, or what, uh, what Matthew 5, verses 21 through 48 are, are the practical uh, outworking of verses 17 through 20. Jesus is very specifically showing us how he fulfills the law. And so it's in our application of the law where, where we see Jesus most clearly. Because what Jesus runs through in these verses is not an easier way in which to understand and apply the law, or even a different way in which to understand and apply the law, but a deeper way to understand and apply the law. Much deeper than what the Pharisees and the scribes were doing. It surpasses them. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees have set up the law as a standard of conduct. And that might be familiar to some of you. Some of you might, may have already set up your own standard of conduct that you hold yourself to and that you hold others to that is absolutely impossible. And every day you wake up, you are crushed because you do that. And this is what the Pharisees have done. A standard of conduct so that they could feasibly 
check the box. They need no outside help for this. It is all up to them. I can accomplish this. I can be holy on my own. I need no one or nothing to step in from the outside to help me is what their life communicates. But what Jesus is saying here, by reframing the law around himself, is that there is much more to the law than just doing the law. That you apply the law without understanding how Jesus fulfills it and reframes it just makes it useless. Jesus is saying to us that these are not morality texts, but examples that explain what true righteousness looks like in a real-life, boots-on-the-ground way. And that true righteousness is not something that just stays surface level. It's not something that just kind of just gives you these, these motivators in which to live a better life. But the, this Jesus' true righteousness is what sinks down into your heart and changes you from the inside out, not the outside in. Well, even with clear exposition, some of us are probably still looking at these verses and either thinking, okay, what I heard him say was, if I can just do those things, then I will be good. I know there's still people who will leave this building today and still think that way. Or you're thinking, this is impossible. I will never, ever, ever be able to live up to what Jesus calls me to. So what Jesus has just finished telling us is this. Here is what you must do. You'll never do it. But in and through me, you can. Here's what you must do. You're never going to do it on your own. But in and through me, you can. Look at verse 20. Jesus says, Jesus admits the impossibility of it all for us. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have to be better than the scribes and Pharisees. Those men that you think are so perfect and do everything so right, you have to be better than them. Or you'll never enter the kingdom. It's impossible. And then you have verse 48, where Jesus closes this introductory marks uh, into the, the Sermon on the Mount with verse 48, with this um, cheery, uh, encouraging um, word. You, therefore... Must be perfect. And not only must you be perfect, but you have to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's impossible. Why would Jesus tell us those things? Why would he tell us those things if he didn't want us to be thrust upon himself? To only have the option of tethering ourselves to the one who has already done this perfectly. To the one who has already uh, satisfied the, the, the demands of the law. The one who has already exceeded the scribes and the Pharisees in every part of it. The one who is perfect as his heavenly father is perfect. Because both of these verses tell us that the task laid before us says, in order to enter God's kingdom, one must have a deep 
and high righteousness. A righteousness that exceeds the most religious people that you have ever met in your lifetime, and the other is perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. An impossible righteousness on your own. On both accounts. The only way that we get this type of righteousness is in and through Christ alone. It's the only way. It's not something that you earn. It's not something that you work for. But it's something that you're given as a gift through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for this reminder um, of, a, of a hard text that, that reminds us that we can do nothing apart from the finished work of Christ. And so, Father, I pray for those here um, who the gospel may be new to them, um, but they also understand that they are not able to do this life on their own, that they're frustrated, they're tired, uh, they're worn out, they're depressed, they're anxious, they're scared. And it's because they've been trying to do this life on their own, apart from Christ. I pray that they would come to belief, that they would understand that today is the day of salvation. I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ today, that they would uh, repent of their um, work to try to gain favor again and again. I know that's what I do a lot. To gain favor before you. Instead of trusting in your only son. To help us to live according to your gospel. That frees us from this work law mentality. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law for us. And we pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen. So if you are getting baptized, you can be dismissed at this time. Everybody else remain seated. And if, Seth, you, you guys can, you can head out there if you want to as well. Um, just wanna, I want to cast your eyes back to our affirmation of faith. Just to give these guys a chance to change into their bathing suits or whatever they're wearing. My son wore goggles when he got baptized. And he's 18. Just kidding. He's 10. <laughs> he was 8 at the time. Um, but look back at the, the statement of faith um, of what we believe about baptism just to kind of give you a, a reminder of what we believe as a church about baptism because I think that's really important. And some of these folks, some of them have been believers for a while. Uh, some of them are, new, are, are new-ish believers. Um, so um, so they, we have people in both camps. So... Um, but it's, it's still a reminder of what Christ has done for us through his death and through his resurrection. And so, th so we practice uh, believer's baptism because that is, the, uh, that is the, what the Bible says we should do. So, uh, so we, we will immerse them in, in the waters here in just a minute. And that just symbolizes uh, to everybody who is gathered here today... Of, of what this person has understood and believed. And they'll give you a little piece of their story today about what they've understood and believed about the gospel that um, out of everything else, that they know that they are broken and they need outside intervention. They need supernatural interve in, intervention for them to be able to have a relationship 
uh, a peaceful, restored relationship um, with the God of the universe. And so the only way that happens is if we die with Christ, we're buried with Christ, and we're raised again with him in his glorious resurrection. And all of that takes place outside in a horse trough that we got from Tractor Supply and in a, and water that we just filled up with a hose. All of that, that great truth is communicated during that time. So it's amazing. So keep that in mind as we, we, we're going to celebrate with these people. So as they rise, and some of these people are, are, are terrified to give their testimony in front of you. So make them feel welcome. Make them feel comfortable in doing that. But also celebrate as they rise out of the waters of baptism today. Cheering, clapping, whatever you feel comfortable doing. I know we're not a clapping church right now, but we can, yeah, he did that. Thank you. That was good. That was good. We need more clapping here. We had a family come that visited, and they clapped in the back, and all of us were freaking out. So, um, so anyway, so we got to get better at that, guys. Um, all right, so I will ask you, take your worship guy with you. You can take your stuff with you as well. Um, we, we won't come back in here unless you're helping tear down. So just go right out there. Surround the baptismal uh, uh, font, if you will, so that you can be close to here.